Hello, and welcome to this podcast from Consider This. Please let me know what you think and tell others about us on social media. This podcast was originally broadcast live on Northumberland 89.7 FM. You can hear this show live every Friday at noon. Thank you for downloading this program, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, I'm Robert Washburn, and welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. Recently, a major snowstorm drew into sharp focus the need for a warming room for people living in the rough. Some of those homeless people sought shelter in the bus terminal in downtown Coburg. Through the actions of some advocates, the bus terminal was kept open during the storm. However, when the storm was over, the people using the bus terminal were evicted. With nowhere else to go and the official warming room run by Northumberland County not ready, a group of volunteers quickly pulled together to create a temporary warming room at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church on King Street in Coburg. It would stay open until the county opened its warming room on December 5th. On today's show, you're going to hear about this volunteer, community-driven effort to provide a temporary warming room for the homeless. Community activist Missy McLean will tell this story. I'm so pleased to have with me today Missy McLean, an advocate working with the St. Andrew's Warming Room. Welcome to Consider This. Hi, Rob. Thanks so much for having me. Let's go back for a moment and walk us through the events that led up to the decision to create a warming room. What took place and how did you get to that point? Sure. So um, it started on Saturday, November 19th. If folks uh, remember, and if folks are based in Northumberland County or Coburg specifically, and you think back, that was a day when we had our first sort of intense winter storm roll through. Um, we had a lot of snow accumulation really quickly. We had high winds, we had ice pellets. It was miserable. Um, visibility was super low. It was really cold out. Um, and that's where it started because as I was, you know, struggling to make my way through the storm, I always, my mind often when every morning when I wake up and I check the weather, my mind goes to, Uh, my friends and neighbors who I know are unsheltered. And so as I'm navigating the storm, I'm thinking to myself, people aren't going to have anywhere to go tonight. Um, The the official warming room doesn't open until December 5th. And so I know that um, since it got cold, folks have been sheltering themselves sort of on and off at the Albert Street bus shelter, which is in downtown Coburg during the day because it's open from eight until eight and it's warm and it has washrooms so folks are often um sort of popping in there hanging out for as long as they can to stay out of the elements so around 5 p.m on that on the 19th i i swung by there to in the storm to see how people were and um as i was talking with them about what they're you know how the afternoon had been going for them trying to stay out of the the storm it became really clear that, you know, if if these if the space was going to be closed, if they were going to be um, told to, that they had to get out and that the doors were going to be locked at 8 p.m., that 
about a dozen people who were there in that moment were going to be out in the cold for the rest of the night. And that's when I decided I um, was going to ask the question of whether it could stay open. And so I did. I contacted our deputy mayor, Nicole Beatty, and I just asked the question, is there a chance the town would consider um, leaving the Albert Street bus shelter open overnight so that folks can continue to stay inside out of the storm? And she said, let me talk to some people. Um, I believe the next step was there was a conversation between her, CAO Tracy Vaughn, uh, Police Chief Paul Vandegraaff, and Fire Chief Ellard Beaven. And they immediately recognized that there was an emergency need here for some flexibility and to provide a, a warm space for folks to stay. And they said, yes, uh, if you can um, provide some support in terms of you know, volunteers to be on site to offer the folks sheltering some additional support, that would be helpful. And um, that's what we did. Six volunteers immediately came together. We each took a two hour shift overnight. We had some drinks and some snacks for folks and some warm clothes, donations that I've been collecting over the last uh, couple months. And we made it through the night. And then uh, as Sunday, people continued to stay there because it was still really cold. There was still a lot of snow um, sort of coming in on and off. Uh, I was asked the question in the afternoon, oh, is this is the bus shelter gonna stay open tonight? People from the town were asking me that. And I said, well, you tell me. Um, we're happy to we're happy to keep supporting people down here if that's okay and they said yeah absolutely we we recognize there's still a need so if you can do it keep going so we did monday um i sent a summary to the town leadership you know letting them know how many folks we'd seen that night um that we had a meal dropped off that was appreciated um we had some folks who were ill and that um, brought some challenges, um, but we cared for them and we were you know, keeping the room clean. And I also offered that, you know, we had met an emergency need with uh, the resources and folks and location we had, but it wasn't gonna be a sustainable solution. Um, we needed a bigger space. The bus shelter is one room, it's small. Um, people, there's no furniture. So people were sleeping on the floor there was nowhere to sit except for the floor. Um, it was drafty because it's one room. So every time someone opened the door, it would get really cold. And, you know, we're in high cold and flu season, COVID's still a thing. And so for people to be in so, such cl close proximity to, to each other just wasn't a good option for a long, like to keep going. So I sent that in the morning. I didn't get a response, but around noon, I got a phone call letting me know that the town had decided that they were going to have to close the bus shelter at 8 p.m. that night. Um, but there was no offer of a conversation about an alternative space. So the volunteers that had sort of come together, we started thinking, okay, we've got a few hours to figure this out. Then by 3 p.m., I was getting messages to tell me that bylaw and police were down at the bus, bus shelter and were asking people to leave. Um, and so we, you know, we were trying to then find people, um, including the, the person we knew who was quite ill and needed some medical attention, some, some health care, to see what we could do next. What that looked like on the Monday night was Jordan Stevenson, who owns Buildex, which is a business in Port Hope. He said, I have a building. I will open 
open it to whoever needs shelter uh, 24-7 if, if we can get them there. And we have some folks to be there to support them. And we said, okay, that worked for some people because, you know, as you can probably appreciate, leaving your community, um, getting in a stranger's car, driving to Port Hope, staying in a, a more remote location wasn't going to be feasible for a lot of people. Um, people have belongings um, that weren't really easily transportable. So it worked for some folks and they were grateful, but it didn't work for the majority. And so we kept brainstorming and talking amongst ourselves about, okay, we need another solution because we're still two, you know, two weeks away from the official warming room. Okay. There's a lot in there and, and thank you. There's so much. And I just like to unpack a little bit about because yeah. there's some details that I think are important. Sure. Now uh, you got this original support from the town for two nights. Yep. Was there any explanation given as to why there was a change? Um, had the weather changed? Was there uh, anything that took place that would indicate that the town was about to change its uh, approach? On Monday in terms of, allowing it to continue to be open. Yes. Well, I think that what the town recognized was that this wasn't a sustainable location for a warming room um, for the number of people that we were seeing. You know, on Saturday night, we had about a dozen people. On Sunday, we saw 25 unique individuals come through the space. Some of them stayed all night to sleep. Some of them popped in, got warm, kept going, would come back. Um, but, you know, word spread that there was a warm place open all night that had food and uh, and um, was welcoming. And so people flocked to it. Um, but it was I think the town's whole thing was they looked at it and said, well, we can't keep sheltering people in here. And I agreed. I told them that this was not uh, I agreed this was not a space that we should continue to shelter dozens of people in at the same time. Um, but it, it's the drop off of, so then what? So where so where will we go instead? That didn't happen. That conversation didn't happen with the town or with the county. And that was gonna be my question was, why didn't somebody pick up a phone and go, hey, county, can we open early or can we do something? What, what, what happened there? So I think that there was conversations were happening. My understanding is that the town did reach out to the county. They didn't hear from them over the weekend, but I think eventually they did get a response um, at some point, I'm not, I, I, I'm not privy to those conversations, so I don't know what they sounded like. Why didn't you call the county? Why was it the town that was calling? I, I mean, they're poli they're politically political allies, so I could see that. But you know, before you phoned uh, Nicole Beatty and got her to take action, why why didn't you just call the social services or the CAO or somebody up there and say, hey, you know, we've got this uh, emergency that's happening because of the weather. What can we do? Well, so uh, um, well, community members have been advocating to the county since I would say late summer, early fall, right? About the need for a warming room that opens sooner. Um, I was getting questions from community members for months in the lead up to when they finally announced when the opening date would be. People are asking me, have you heard about a warming room? Is there gonna be a warming room? When will it open? That announcement finally came, I think it was, early to mid-October and that's when we learned that the county funded room wasn't going to open until Monday December 5th and at that time we were saying the cold weather is already here people need an option to be indoors now uh, and we didn't get a response to that um, 
I contacted the town on the 19th in that moment because they had the risk, they had the power and the keys to the bus shelter and they were the ones who were going to be able to tell me whether we could stay there or not. Um, and then they, you know, leadership told me that they were reaching out to the county. So I left it in their hands. I want to take a moment and talk about what is a warming room because people might be listening and, you know, this term gets thrown around, but what is it exactly and how does it function? So a warming room, I mean, at its, at its core function is a, is a, a warm indoor space that people can access to get out of the cold. Uh, ideally, it will have washrooms. Um, ideally, it will have some furniture where people can sit down. Um, maybe some food and drink, but really it's, it's just, me it's meant to be a space where people can get in out of the cold. Um, where it differentiates from a shelter, um, this is where things get like really complicated, is that that starts to involve um, zoning, uh, um, sort of designations and classifications. Um, that comes into play. And then those those zoning and, and different classifications determine if people can just sit in the space or if they can lay down in the space, can they sleep in the space or do they have to be awake in the space? Um, those kinds of uh, sort of nuances get come into to play. So that's why, you know, when we talk about a warming room and people say, oh, so you have like beds, you have cots. No, because it's not um, a shelter. This is sort of big distinction is are there beds where people can sleep or are there not okay so you you've got this situation now you've got you had this temporary thing in port hall but again not everybody was able to uh go there mm -hmm. how did you progress then to saint andrews and using that space can you tell us about how that unfolded Right. So um, once we knew that the bus shelter was going to be closed, the, the conversations just kept happening amongst uh, concerned community members and folks who are deeply engaged in, you know, housing advocacy and who, who work closely with folks who are unsheltered already in the community. And Reverend Neil Ellis is one of those folks who has been a longtime housing advocate, um, really involved. He was involved in the first iteration of the warming room in 2020, 2021. And he said to us, uh, yeah, you can use, we've got a room, you can use our space. And so as soon as he said that, we mobilized some more volunteers so that we could um, have coverage for, for volunteers to be on site. And it just sort of kept growing from there. What was needed to do this? I mean, it's not, as you said, there's got to be places to sit, possibly food. I mean, there's a, there seems to be a lot, a lot of balls or in the air when you're trying to put this together. How did that aspect come together? It was actually, it was so remarkable. It called this like a community powered warming room because that's what it is. It was six of us on Saturday night that grew to, I think, you know, uh, eight on Sunday night. And then by... Monday, we were a dozen. And then by Tuesday, we were, you know, it just kept exponentially growing. As we talked to our, you know, our neighbors, our friends, put a, a put a, po a post up on Facebook, 
um, saying, hey, this is what we're doing, we need some help. And people answered the call in an overwhelming way. Tell me a bit about that answering of the call. Who stepped forward? Tell us a bit about those people and what they did. The people who stepped forward are everyday community members. They come from all walks of life, all different backgrounds. Um, they're folks who recognize that unsheltered neighbors needed a space to be inside. And if they could contribute to making that happen, then they were ready to do that. Um, so we now, I was just trying to add it up before I jumped on the call with you, and I counted 53 individuals who, are, who have volunteered for being in the room for a shift. And then in addition to that we have another I would say dozen or so folks who have been doing a meal train so we every night we have a hot meal delivered and then we have some other folks who have been taking on roles to gather um, we've had overwhelming responsive donations as well for folks who said I can't be there to take a shift in the room but what I can do is offer this or um you know collect that or um, deliver something um so we've had a really overwhelming response in terms of like manpower, person power, and then also donations. And so some folks have been going around collecting those and, and making deliveries and things like that. Do you have any anecdotes from all of this? Some people you can point to or some individuals and maybe tell us a story or two about some specifics that people did? Um, well, you know, I think the first person that comes to my mind when you ask me that question is um, this young gentleman named Dylan, who is 17. And he is, he immediately said to me, uh, I want to be involved. I want to, I want to be there to support people and, um, and to help however I can. And so I said, sure, like, you know, as long as you've got your parents are okay with you being here. And so it's not only that his parents were okay with him being there, but his um, parents have both been involved. He, he and his mom have been doing shifts together almost every night. They have become like the welcoming faces of the room for folks each night when we open. And um, yeah, they, he's just really um, engaged the community members who are seeking shelter, just really having like, I, I just picture him like he's having a laugh with someone over in one corner. Um, he's helping me assemble, you know, whatever uh, um, racks and things I was trying to put together the other night, just really like lending a hand in any way that he can. In the press release that came out about this, uh, there's a mention that it's only a temporary measure and you've mentioned it several times in our conversation. Mm -hmm. um, it's only going till f next week. Mm -hmm. And then St. Peter's Church is opening with Transition House and the county's program begins. Yeah. Why is this an important strategy or is this an important piece? I mean, a lot of people have donated. A lot of people have done a lot of things. Why did we need to continue to do this in between on such a short basis and all this energy and all this effort? Why didn't we just sort of say, okay, look, you know, the, the snow's gone. It warmed up a bit. Why did we keep, why do we keep pressing forward? It warmed up a bit. I mean, it's three degrees today. Do you want to sleep outside? I don't. 
people say, oh, it's not, oh, it's warmed up a bit. It's not so cold, but yeah, that those are the folks who are going back indoors. <laughs> those are the folks who are going back indoors to a bed tonight. Um, what is an acceptable temperature? Well, first of all, I think people should have a, a, a safe, warm option to lay their heads and, and get rest every night of the year, not just in, in winter or when the cold weather hits. We need sheltering options to meet the needs of folks all year round. Um, but this was a gap. This was a gap that had to be filled because the folks who are sleeping rough, it's affecting their health in so many ways. Their physical health is dramatically deteriorating in the in the cold weather, their mental health. Um, and, and we just wanted to meet those needs, but also to make sure that they knew that they are seen and that they are deserving of all the dignities that this room has afforded them. We talk about warming rooms at night, but we mm -hmm. don't talk about it through the day. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what's the difference and why is this not going, say, 24-7? So I'll tell you, the reason why the St. Andrews community-powered warming room isn't going 24-7 is because we just don't have the capacity to keep it going 24-7. Plus, the church has, you know, the church is a space that's used by a variety of community groups. Um, and so that they need access to the spaces that they make use of as well. So the space isn't available 24-7 um, from a, a volunteer capacity. Um, we wouldn't be able to staff it 24-7 at this time, I don't think. And the reason why we focus on the overnight is, you know, as you can imagine, fewer options for people to get inside overnight. Um, there isn't much that stays open late in town. There isn't much that stays open late in town where you're not required to buy something or, um, you know, um, being, being a patron. So the nights are really the stretch when temperatures drop. Uh, it's, you know, it's dark, which increases sort of the, the, the comfort level of being out on the street, um, trying to find somewhere to, to hang out where you're not going to be, you know, targeted for, you know, what are you here for? What are you up to? So that's why we wanna make sure people have that, this access overnight. Plus people need to, need to rest but they don't sleep. They rest their eyes and we let them. They need to sleep. Yeah, they sleep, they sleep. Denying someone sleep, sleep, sleep deprivation is a form of, a form of torture. Sleep deprivation has real consequences for people's health. People need to be able to sleep. But they don't lie down. They don't they, lay in a bed. They don't lay in a bed, no. They're not in a cot. No. But you know what? Uh, one of the community members who has been accessing the room on probably from the first night um, came in one night and we said we had had to make some adjustments to the room in terms of what was available to folks for resting. And uh, And he said, this room is a blessing no matter what's inside. 
This was after we had to remove the mattresses that were donated to us. Um, and we had to say, you know, you're gonna notice a change tonight. We don't have the mattresses for people to sleep on. We've, we've got some comfy chairs and couches and things. And he said, this room is a blessing. It doesn't matter what the furniture is. Has this experience indicated to, uh, to the county that there may be a need for a, a second warming room? In other words, if there is a need or how many ever people are out there, do we need a second warming room in Coburg? I think we need sheltering options that will meet the needs of the folks who need to, to seek shelter, who don't have an option for their own their own home in this moment. We need a variety of options. If someone stepped up and said to you, can you keep this going? I'm not saying a political person, maybe one of the, the people that use it or, or whoever. If there was enough of a voice that said, you know, could you keep this going? I mean, is that something your group would consider? My heart, in my heart, I think yes because the folks who are involved in this um, warming room at St. Andrews are so committed and connected to the neighbors that were, that were helping to access shelter. But it is taking a toll on folks because, um, you know, everyone, we've tried to make this as sustainable as possible by making a few different adjustments, you know, in a typical sort of shelter or warming room um, space, shifts might be, you know, an overnight shift might be eight to 12 hours. That's not um, a reasonable ask of a volunteer. So we we said, okay, how are we going to make this sustainable, more sustainable? Um, we broke our shifts up into two hour increments. People can commit to two hours. So that's how we've managed to keep that a, um, a little bit more doable for for the volunteers, because a lot of the volunteers um, are also, you know, uh, have all kinds of other responsibilities that they're managing at the same time that they're showing up for their community members at the warming room. To operate a warming room is not a simple thing. Uh, we've talked about the physical space, but what about the volunteers themselves? Is there been any training? Um, are, are they taught how to deal with people who may have mental health issues or people who might be in crisis, you know, or, you know, the administration of naloxone or CPR, first aid, emergencies, those kinds of things. What, what sort of things have you done to support the volunteers? Because again, it's, it's not a simple thing that they're being asked to do. Yeah, there, it's not a simple thing. And what's so remarkable about the group that's come together is that, We've been able to draw on the strengths and skills and gifts of the community members from so many different areas. We have people who hold, you know, professional designations of like a doctor or a social worker or outreach worker or shelter worker. We have folks who, you know, but you don't need to have to hold space for folks and to be in community with folks in a in a way that is dignified and um, and affirming for them. Does don't need uh, credentials for that. Right. You just you you need humanity and you need to have a desire to show up and um, and just be with people. Uh, neighbor to neighbor. Um, but we do offer we have an orientation uh, and training video, it's almost two hours long. It's it's extensive that we require each person to view before they take a shift. 
And in that video, we cover a lot of uh, content. So it's an introduction to the space. So if someone's showing up for a shift, it's the first time they've ever been there, they actually see a visual, they see pictures of the space and the pathway from the, from the door that people enter down the staircase in, into the foyer, into the main room. Um, we talk about the logistics of the room in terms of like hours and, um, you know, different um, pieces around that, sort of the meals and the supplies that are available, those pieces. We talk about the boundaries that we've created in the space in terms of, you know, smoking outside, um, staying within the um, spaces that are available to us, provided that the church has told us that are designated spaces. Um, we talk about the role of the volunteer in this space. What is your role and what's not your role? Um, and what that looks like. And then we talk a bit about um, sort of a de-escalation techniques. Some of the, you know, more some of the challenging um, scenarios that might arise and some best practices for how to navigate them. And then we uh, go into um, exactly what you mentioned about uh, overdose response training from a trauma-informed approach in terms of how to identify and respond to an overdose of either um, an opioid or stimulant. There are many bylaws and standards and inspections and, and permits and all kinds of things, insurance again. Mm -hmm. um, how did you deal with those hurdles and getting those things in place in such a short amount of time? Um, <clears throat> We just engaged with everybody that we thought we needed to contact right away. So Reverend Neil Ellis right away got in touch with the church's insurance to say, is this a possibility? Yes, okay, we got the insurance clearance. We reached out to police, uh, to fire. Um, fire Chief Ellard Beaven came into the church. He and the Reverend uh, walked around, made sure everything was um, going to be in good standing, made sure we had new fire extinguishers, made sure that the smoke alarms were all working and new, made sure that the fire exits were all designated, um, got the sign off there. Um, there was just a real community will to make this happen. So people made themselves available. Um, they made the phone calls, they found the time, and that's how it got together so quickly. There is an incident that took place last week when the Coburg police dropped by the warming room. And there's been a lot online and on social media about the incident. Do you know what happened? Yeah, I do. Um, so I think it was on the Friday evening, an officer stopped by the room, um, I, I believe just to check in, um, see how things were going. And so one of our volunteers uh, met them in the foyer and had a conversation with them. Um, they made their way back up to the main door and, and after a bit of talk about how things were going in the room, the officer left. Can you give us any perspective on this incident? And for example, um, what are some of the rules and regulations or protocols around th these kinds of, of visits and, and when people come that may be uh, from not the group, et cetera. Can you talk a bit about how that works? Sure. So um, we do have a policy for engaging with the police in this space that follows the best practices that are in place in uh, nearly every emergency shelter um, in Ontario. And 
that is um, if police are are called to come and attend to a, a situation at the room, then they come in and attend to the situation. But if no one has called the police, then um, our practice is to require them to not enter the, the space. Um, and that is for the, um, the privacy, confidentiality and safety of the folks who are seeking shelter there. Is it unusual though that the police would come by? Uh, it, how does that aspect of it work? I mean, it's, it's hard for me to know. I mean, this is a policy that we had in place in the first iteration of the warming room where I was the supervisor um, that we operated for four months and the police knew the policy, respected the policy. We never had any issues around it. Um, and I imagine that last year, I, I, I mean, I wasn't involved last year in the warming room at St. At St. Peter's, so I can't speak to it, but like this is a very common policy that's in place. But is it unusual to have officers come by, check in, see how things are going? Me a little bit. We've had um, we've had good. Uh, I mean, when I ran the warming room in in um, twenty twenty one, we had uh, support from the from the police in that they would often bring someone to the warming room. Like they they would bring someone to the warming room, bring them to the front door. And then we would welcome them in and the officer would would carry on on their shift. Have you spoken with the chief or any other representatives from the police since this incident? No, I haven't. I want to move on and talk to you about expenses. Uh, you've been very lucky with all the donations, mm -hmm. um, but there must be costs. How are you funding this? Donations. Yeah. Donations, donations from the volunteers, donations from community, and the in-kind donation of the use of the space, which involves utilities and all of those um, costs from St. Andrews. So the church is picking up all the costs around heating and electricity. Is that what you're telling me? Yes. And and then any additional? Uh, how is how is that working? Are are you? Uh, when people donate, uh, is there a particular uh, organization that's taking the donations? Uh, how are you? How are you handling all that? <laughs> so it's been a really grassroots effort. So we get, you know, some of them. Will, we have a WhatsApp group for all the volunteers, and we have messages flying around in there all day long, well into the evening and early hours, pretty much twenty four seven. Um, and it, I'll see a message that says, um, uh, "Someone just contacted me." and they want to make a donation of, you know, um, some winter coats and um, some boots, where can I bring it? And the answer has largely been Jenny's front porch. <laughs> um, one of our volunteers who lives close by, um, yeah, has, we've been having like a makeshift sort of drop off um, there. And then we work together as a team to transfer it over to the church. Is there any uh, finance, like cash that people are donating and how does that work? There has been some cash donations and um, my understand and I, I try to keep up with the chat, but sometimes when I'm at work, it's hard to, but I believe that sometimes an organization like say Greenwood Coalition or the church itself that can receive cash donations will receive that money and then direct it to um, help support whatever's needed at the room. What kinds of supports have you received from the town? 
the mayor, council, has anybody come by or talked to you? Yeah, we've had um, we've had counselors volunteering uh, frequently, actually taking shifts in the room. Yeah, uh, Councillor Bureau, Councillor Burkett, um, Deputy uh, Mayor Beatty. Um, who else has been there? Those are the three that are jumping out um, to my mind. And um, yeah, they've been taking shifts. Um, Councillor Burkett's actually been taking shifts with his with his daughter. They've been pairing up. Um, yeah, Nicole's been there with her partner. Um, we've had a lot of engagement from council members. So what's next? Well, we're going to keep doing what we're doing right up until the doors open at the St. Peter's warming room. We're going to make sure that each night folks who need to get out of the coals and have somewhere to feel like they're welcomed and in community and grab a meal and um, maybe grab some supplies, have access to washrooms, are going to have all of those opportunities and, and access to all of those things right up until the other room opens. Missy McLean, I want to thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks for this opportunity, Ralph. That was Missy McLean, an activist involved in the community-led warming room at St. Andrew's Church. This warming room closed its doors after the county started offering its services at St. Peter's Anglican Church on November 30th. McLean said all the donations given to the community initiative were donated to Transition House and St. Peter's for its warming room. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life and Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Consider This. If you have any comments or would like to suggest a story, please contact me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com or you can message me on Facebook at Consider This. If you enjoyed this podcast or are looking for more news and information about Northumberland County, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. That's consider-this.ca. And don't forget to share. And again, thank you for listening and stay tuned for more from Consider This.